Hello and welcome to the Standard Sportsman Podcast, where your hosts Brent Birch and Kaysen Short will discuss, debate, and detail trending topics within the sport of duck and goose hunting. Brent and Kaysen have over 80 years combined chasing ducks in Arkansas with a like-minded pursuit of leaving waterfowling better than they found it. Each week, you will hear impactful interviews and engaging guests guaranteed to make you a more informed and effective hunter-conservationist. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now, let us jump into today's show with the guys. Hey guys, it's Brent Birch, a co-host of The Standard Sportsman. And if you recall or listened to our last episode you know that we interviewed the legendary conservationist and waterfowler george dunklin and the interview was so awesome and ran long enough that we have cut this one into two parts so what you've got today is the continuance of that first episode and it should be enlightening as we get into talking about the five oaks ag research center Uh, we get to talking about five oaks the the outfitter that george owns and even talk a little tennis uh towards the end so enjoy The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. From the people who brought you the first motion goose decoy in 1994 comes the first motion silhouette decoy. Once again, Higdon Outdoors has changed the game. I got a chance to get my hands on some of these the other day, and I was blown away. When I first heard they were in the works, I was a little skeptical. I didn't really see how you could have all the benefits of a silhouette, like lightweight decoys, the space savings, the ease of setup and not lose something with adding a motion system. But as soon as I put the first stake in the ground, I knew they got it right. These rigs have amazing motion in the lightest breeze, and they sacrifice nothing. I've been chasing specs for over three decades, back when a spec call was even hard to find. It's amazing how far we've come in spec hunting, and Higgin Outdoors continues to pave the way. Revolutionary footwear from Light Boots, the lightest waterproof boot ever made. Your first hands-on feed-in introduction to Light Boots is a jaw-dropping experience. With a pair of men's 11s weighing in at less than 26 ounces, light boots are the benchmark in ultra-lightweight toughness, next-generation comfort, and ease of use. Whether you're all-weather hunting and fishing, farm and ranching, or home and gardening, light boots are guaranteed game-changers, now available in youth sizes. Well, let's uh, let's transition a little bit, because um, this is something that, uh, you know, Case and I follow very closely um, and, and talk to talked to Doug Osborne quite a bit, but you've, you've played a, a huge role in advancing some of the research that's being done, whether it's banding, transmitters, habitat, uh, next generation of, of biologists uh, that are, that are going to be guiding, you know, where we go uh, with a species and, and as a hunting community Um but let's let's visit about the the Five Oaks Ag Research Center. Uh, for those that don't know, maybe explain what it is and what 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 trying to do what we're trying to do with that, and then kind of what's uh, what's uh, on the radar currently and and maybe in the short term about about what all is being accomplished there. Absolutely, Th- thank you for asking about because we're very proud of this. We start Five Oaks Ag Research Education Center was started in twenty twenty. Uh, the simple idea that uh, Jody Pagan, who's um, been been a great friend of mine and, and biologist, uh, working with him and hunting partner since 2005, one of the most brilliant guys I've ever been around in waterfowl, and uh, 
and, and we we had a little consulting company we were working with landowners and and we had a frustration that that you know the caretaker was kind of the de facto biologist and they knew how to, to drive the tractors and plant the food plots and brush the blinds and get the water on but they didn't know the science side and we were trying to uh, get landowners to be able to improve their properties again we don't compete against each other we complement each other um to improve their properties well we just didn't have this, the success that we we were hoping to and we we realized these kids are coming out of school with these degrees but they don't know anything about the hunting aspect or the farming aspect and so that was our first start is that we need to we need to create or have a way to be able to train uh, these young, bright biologists uh, on how this works and how a duck hunting operation works and what do you have to do to make it happen and the, the, the applied science side. They might have the academic side, but they don't have the applied side. So that was the, that was the simple concept when we started is to have a marriage with Doug Osborne and what he's doing at UAM and the great work that he has done. Uh, and, and and then bring Jody in to, to teach the applied side. And the first year, uh, we had four students uh, in the first year. Uh, they get a full scholarship. It's a $20,000 a year stipend, and which uh, out of that pays their scholarship. First year, they, they lived in Monticello, and then they would come up here a couple of days a week. Well, I had bought a lodge called Little Siberia Lodge back in 2017. It was just, we just mothballed the thing. And we said the second year, well, realize they need to spend more time here instead of Monticello. It's about an hour and a half drive to Monticello. And, and so we moved them up here to be able to spend a lot more time. And that got them more engaged on the farming side and also through Five Oaks, through our side. So um, our clientele at Five Oaks got to spend time and vice versa with these young students. And uh, you just see them grow, you know, it, Biologists just by nature are somewhat introverted. Now Jody's not. He's he's he he doesn't fall in that category, but but most of them are. That will make some great biologists, just like foresters and others. They just kind of like being by themselves. But as I tell the students, the, the biologists that I remember the most, whether it's Game and Fish or Ducks Unlimited or whether in Canada or Mexico, wherever I've been, the ones that can explain to me, a layman, what is going on and, and inspire me with it. And so that trying to get them to be a, be better communicators uh, was a real challenge. So we stick them in the lodge. We stick them in a blind with a with one of our professional guides. We they go along. One of the students will go along with the with the hunters uh, to be able to explain what's what we're doing, and and just watching over a period of sixty days, watching these kids, these students really grow in their confidence level to be able to communicate. It's really been fun to watch. We then we introduced a program. My daughter is uh, Hillary is an educator. Got her master's at SMU. Taught for seven years, and so she introduced a program where we're to the fourth graders, where we're doing conservation to fourth graders. They come and spend the day with us, and but our graduate certificate students are teaching it, and so again, forcing them to interact and uh, to know what they're doing. And Jody's teaching them all the applied science of that along with his his crew daniel duke and brandon bennett and and then we added this past year 
uh, as the director of the Institute uh, of, of Five Oaks Ag Research is Dr. Ryan Askren. And Dr. Askren is 33 years old from Iowa. He was a postdoc uh, doctor under Dr. Osborne. And we actually were granting the money through our foundation to support him after the first two years. Well, this year we decided, let's bring him on full-time to Stuttgart. So he and his wife have moved from Monticello to Stuttgart. And he's overseeing now the program on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, just a fantastic uh, person. Uh, great duck hunter, great person, smart as a whip. He's doing all the, doing the GPS stuff on the birds and he can write code. I mean, he's, he, he just, he's just an unusual, incredible person that we're so excited. Didn't even know existed till we started this program. And, uh, and he'll be a great kind of contributor to, to waterfowl uh, over his career. Um, and so he's overseeing the day-to-day. -day. We have a, this year we actually, we had, we had about 10 come in and try and march out for the program. And we had, we got it down to five and we couldn't, we couldn't decide which one, so we just took an extra one this year. So we got five students coming in August. Next summer, then these kids will graduate in from University of Arkansas Monticello with their certificate degree next May, like the first two classes did. But next summer, we're designing and going to offer an apprenticeship or an internship program for three months so they can stay on as employees of ours, uh, the ones that want to stay on. Uh, that hadn't gotten a job or want to get further education can stay on in, in, as an apprenticeship on the program and working with, with Jody and all the different places he's working and what we're doing here at Five Oaks. So, it, you know, it's it, we're still in the crawl. Uh, you know, we're learning. We're, we're just crawling. We haven't even started walking yet, much less running, uh, getting this program off the ground. Uh, that's one aspect we wanted. The other aspect was bottomland hardwood research. We want to understand more about what's going on in these bottomland hardwoods. Of course, the University of Arkansas Monticello is our state's only forestry school, which is backed by the Division of Ag and at the University of Arkansas. So we've we've incorporated that that those two institutes uh, into the program now, uh, under, trying to understand better how can we how can we manage these green tree reservoirs better, and that's really what we're focused on, the green tree reservoir. So. When Biomeda and all these other WMAs get rebuilt over the next uh, decade, uh, we'll know how to bring them back faster uh, through the research that University of Arkansas Monticello is doing. A lot of that research is here on this farm. Sitka uh, Gear is helping sponsor some of that. So we've been able to get some outside help because we actually had to pay people to go cut the timber and do, we're trying to emulate what they're doing over in Biomeda right now. Uh, so we understand, can we, is it, how do we bring these woods back faster? Is it through uh, bare root ceilings, is it part of uh, containerized plants or natural? What kind of, what kind of, how much sunlight do they need on the ground? What kind of cut does it need to be? So we got all these variable uh, scientific tests that are going on uh, out in our woods over about, over about 35 acres of our timber uh, that we've cut. And so hopefully after seven to 10 years, we'll have a bench much better understanding of how to be able to save these green tree reservoirs and bring it back. We've got, we've got to, I mean, it, we can't lose that component. I mean, we'll be in real trouble with the mallards if we ever lost that, in my opinion. And then, uh, the, yeah, the third thing is, is, is uh, habitat uh, on the ground, more habitat for the birds. 
uh, what you know, moist soil habitat, what works best, how to train uh, uh, caretakers or biologists and these students how to grow that better. What chemicals can we use to, to get the right weeds with fertilization? So there's a lot of, we know all that in agriculture and soybeans and rice. We just don't know much about, we know how to kill uh, barnyard grass and smart weed and all these other species. We need to know how to, to make it better. And so it's, so that's kind of the ag part as well. And then, uh, then doing the GPS work on the birds and the banding as well. And so doing about, about a hundred birds a year that we're, putting GPS receivers on and uh, uh, and doing the banding with about seven or 800 birds a year that they're banding and uh, learning learning more about that. That's it's a lot of data points there, a lot of a lot of information we're gathering all the time. But but, you know, but it's it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, that evolves uh, over time. And ball shotgun shells have been a, a, a help sponsor some of that that call. So those those. Every GPS receiver is about about fifteen hundred dollars. It's pretty expensive, but uh, they they've stepped up the plate and uh, and help uh, sponsor some of that. So I appreciate appreciate Sitka gear and, and ball shotgun shells for for helping that out. Um, my private foundation is the one that's gotten to start as primary funder now. Though at Five Oaks, um, started in last year, everybody that comes to Five Oaks makes a contribution. That's part of their uh part oh, that's wow. the yeah. it's the pay now so everybody now is contributing i'm I'm just a volunteer you know so uh at all of this but but uh so we're getting more people engaged involved and, and people that can you know decision making type people that can stakeholders and so we can get all those people come through folks now are on a mailing list and and, and keeping them engaged what's going on so they're kind of vested interest not not through an equity position but through uh, a contribution way and, well and you also you also hope that they're uh, vested in an education way too yeah. that they're able to go when they you know if they travel from wherever you know five oaks you got people that are arkansans that that come there to hunt but you got people that come from elsewhere same as Kaysen does with his outfitter but for them to be around that kind of environment and that kind of messaging and and if they have open ears to be able to hear the realities of, of what's going on within the the sport or within the resource or within the habitat and then be able to take that back and spread the gospel so to speak that that disputes the the myths and the yep. the, the blame game and everything else that you see um i mean we ha just have to be uh, us as waterfowlers have to be so appreciative that there's efforts like this. I know, you know, Jeff Watts got a, a deal yeah. going on that he's doing in Missouri. So there, you know, there's other pockets of this and uh, just, it's, it's hard to sit and think about where, where, how much farther we would be if we, if we would have been able to have this vision, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, um, and, and how much more information we would have. Yeah, never too late to start. You know, I always say, when's, no. the best plan? when's the best time to plant a tree was yesterday. Well, the next best day is today. And that's kind of what we're doing. We're planting trees today. And Jeff has been a great partner uh, with us in this to help us get Sitka and Boss shotgun shells. He's the one that's really done that. And he gets it. I mean, Jeff Watts gets it. I mean, he's, he's doing the same thing. As uh, he doesn't have the, the, the program for the interns, but he's doing a lot of the other work that we're doing down here. Um, just a fantastic 
God, there's a guy out in the West Coast, Michael Crowder, that has interns and is doing a, a great job at, uh, on the West Coast uh, in Washington State. Um, got to know him through the program. So there are others out there that, yeah. that are concerned and, and, and realize what's going on that, that love, love this resource like we do. But, but some of our clientele that come through here, I mean, Johnny Morris is one. I mean, Johnny was here last year with us. We're former chairman, CEO of Caterpillar or Microsoft. I mean, we, we have some incredible people. And those guys, and, and ladies, we got uh, Mindy, uh, Mindy Webb. Uh, Mindy West. West. Yeah. Mindy West, that builder writer. She's our only female host that we have, but she's chief financial officer of Murphy USA. And now she's on our board of directors at Doug Unlimited. Um, and, a, and a conservationist and a great hunter. Um, but, you know, they, they want to know, you know, they, they ask great questions, you know, and, and when you get those students around them that understand the science of it and what we're doing, it's, it's, it's the questions and are helping the students be able to explain and helping them come be able to be better storytellers and biologists. And uh, it really is a unique, kind of a unique combination where you can get everybody in that same lodge where normally they were in the past would never cross, ever have a chance to cross. And you can do it. But, but it normally it's just for two or three days, but that, that can be a big impact. And we all know, you know, getting a duck blind with somebody, what, what you can always, you can learn a lot about somebody in a duck blind, what kind of person they are. And, <laughs> and a lot of business transaction, you know, in a duck blind. Well, this gives us a chance to really, as you say, educate these decision makers on what's going on because we need their help. I mean, this doesn't, it doesn't just happen. You know, it, it's not, but it's not by just luck that the duck flies within 40 yards, the end of your shotgun bell. You know, I mean, wow. there's a lot that goes on to make that happen. And um, the more we can educate the, the better, better chance we have to keeping this great sport alive and going for a long, long time. Funny story real quick on Mindy, uh, West, she, when I was playing baseball at the University of Arkansas, she was actually one of the, uh, we called them diamond dolls. They, you know, you've seen them on yeah, TV, yeah. girls, girls, uh, girls and go get the bats and the hell, you know, all that. Well, well Mindy was, uh, so I've known her uh, since those days, uh, way back when. But uh, yeah, we got to, got to catch up. She was actually came down and spoke because she's part of the uh, Governor Sanders. Um, council, you were there. George was there um, yep. at that luncheon that that she she was on a panel uh, for the Little Rock Rotary downtown mm -hmm. Rotary. So, um, but anyway, yeah, it's a funny little story there on on many. Nice, oh, I, I can't wait to see her. Big yeah. time. Yeah, you don't <laughs> so have any pictures, do you? Yeah, <laughs> uh, no, I I probably do. In a, like an old media guide, I'm sure there's oh. there's a picture of them in there. Well, but uh, I was so I've been so impressed with her. I, I I'm one nominated for a board director's position and. Uh, uh, I'm so glad. I mean, you know, her time is really valuable. Um, oh yeah. She's, I mean, she's the real deal though. She is, she is yeah. no joke when it comes to, uh, you know, being a, a waterfowler. No conservation. Really, that whole it's not for, it's not for show. No, not at all. She's, we're very fortunate to have her involved with the U and, and you, you heard the answers that day, um, at the rotary. She was fabulous. I mean, I just, Oh, no was, doubt. Right on point. And uh, anyway, yeah, she's 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 a good one, but she's one of our she's one of our hosts here at Five Oaks. And again, good chance to our students get around a chance to be around somebody like that. That you know what a how how fortunate that is for them. 
and for both, for, for the other party as well, to be able to hear the science of it and really understand it. And George, talk to us a little bit more about kind of that side of Five Oaks, uh, the, the guiding and hunting side of the operation that you've got going on there. Yeah, sure. Well, I, it started in 1983, and it really was a way to, to justify. My mother was my boss. She owned, the, she owned all the lands. My dad had his own business in Pine Bluff. But my mother was my boss, um, and she didn't really like this duck hunting deal at all because you know it, it, you got to spend money, you know. It's, and so I had to figure out a way how to justify what, what I wanted to do on our properties, and that's kind of so I just backed into the thing that way into into five oaks. But I but I found out I really loved the the hospitality side of the business, um, and learning and, and working with people and. Uh, you know, really, really made some wonderful friends over the last 40 years by doing this. Uh, and so it, it, and I realized these the people that were coming were allowing me to do for our properties that otherwise I could never have done the development of the property. So, so my deal I made with my mother is every penny that whatever we made, we put it back into the land because that helped our rice farm, that lowered our water costs, that helped our properties. So we just put value. I never, I never took a nickel of salary out for myself. And, and, and so it, 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 but my, my salary always thought I had just, I, I was able to be around people like this and have fantastic duck hunting. And so it was a great benefit, unbelievable benefit to me, but I really enjoyed the hospitality side and try to make the lodge. And I, I would try case and try anything we could control. We need to do it as well as we can. We need to make sure we got the best, the, the food's got to be the best, the best cut of meat. You better have the bar right. The beds better be um, uh, the best mattresses that we can have. The lodge better be immaculate and clean and the TV better work. You know, all the things that you can, the truck's got to work, the blind, all the things that we can control, we need to control. Because um, you only you only got a short time. You know, you're here in 24 hours. At the most, we're going to have you out in the in woods is three hours. I mean, we, we're, we're in by now. We leaving at nine o'clock in the morning or, or when you get your limit, whichever comes first. And, and so we better make everything else, the whole experience, a quality experience. And so we work really hard at that experience level. And because we have a lot of business, we only lease to one group at a time. And a lot of these are businesses that come in. And so they're trying to make, they, they got to make a return on what they're paying us or now contributing to us. Uh, otherwise they're not going to do it. You know, they, they got, and so they've got, it's got to be a positive to them and they got to be making money on, on us. Um, and so that's driven, you know, if I, if I just leased it out uh, without having, you know, just leased the woods out and not run the lodge, you know, you, you, you're just, you're, disassociated with it you know if they kill ducks that's great if they don't you know that's okay this way it i mean when you're there on that front line every day seeing those suburbans roll back in you you want to see smiles on their faces coming out that's what drives you this time of year to make sure we're doing everything that we can to, to in july that's going to create the best opportunity we have to kill ducks in november december and january we're obviously going to have bad days. Everybody has bad days. We're going to have, no matter what you read on Facebook, <laughs> everybody has bad days. And, and the weather determines that. But but when our 
when we do have a series of two or three, four or five day, bad days in a row, I got all Jody will get kind of down or guys. I said, is there something we didn't do back in July that we should have done? Well, no, we did it. Okay. That's all we can do. That's all we can do is all we can do. Now, what is there something we improve on? Well, we could do that. And so every year we try to try to continue to improve. And, um, and that kind of led to this whole deal, what we're doing with the, with, with five books, egg research, we got to continue to improve if we're going to do this. And, but so five Oaks is the goal of five Oaks by putting it in, in a public charity. Now 501 C three is, is hopefully a hundred years from now. It's, it's working and doing much better than it is today. And we still got ducks. I mean, that's, that's the idea. Um, as I said, I'm a volunteer. So whoever replaces me is going to have somebody that's going to be paid. Um, they're not going to do this at the goodness of the heart. And so, um, you know, I, we're, we've got to create a model where we can make this sustainable. And that's what we're trying to work on uh, right now is to make sure we can, this will go on. So I'm recruiting my six, my, I'm starting my succession plan, bringing my son-in-law in from Huntsville, Alabama, my daughter, Hillary, they're moving back. Uh, he's a very successful lawyer there in Huntsville. Wonderful young man, 33 years old, a very passionate young man for the outdoors, very extremely bright. Um, mother and father, both from Helena, Arkansas. Uh, and he's coming back to start learning, uh, working under me. But he'll answer, though, to an independent board of directors that, that oversees the, the 501c3, the public charity. And so trying to take the family, trying to have a higher, having some family, but you also got to be you get, you're not here just because you are a family. You have to you have to earn every day you're here, and uh, that board of directors has a fiduciary to, to the five hundred one to the five Oaks Ag Research and Education Center, uh, number first. And so that's that's my plan is right now is between uh, uh, Stuart, my son-in-law Stuart Horner, and uh, Dr. Ryan Askren. Those two young men, both thirty-three years old. I'm hoping they have a long long career here. And that can take this five oaks to a whole nother level that I would never even drink of. And um, that's that's my goal. That's what we're trying to well, do. Well, <laughs> they're there when the time it happens, they got some big, big, big shoes to fill. But uh, yeah, the legacy uh that you've you've left for them is uh something they should I feel very honored to pick up the ball and run with it, but uh have a lot to work with. That'll be um uh, that'll be a, a a transition that will uh, be super important to to all of us, not just uh, not just uh, what's going on there and in, in the you know the Grand Prairie region. Well, they'll be here. You know, the great thing is they're both going to be living here in the Grand Prairie region, Stuttgart, and they'll be involved and engaged, and they'll be out here on the on the habitat, on the land every day. And you know, I I, I really I, when I look back, and secret of my success is. Is I, I live across the street from this place. I, you know, we could. My wife is from Memphis. I could. I could live in Memphis and just been a farm manager over. You know, or lived in Little Rock or Pine Bluff. The difference is living here and being on the property or being here on it every day, on the weekends, and because it it's part of our life. I mean, it just. It's not. It's not work. It's just. This is. You know, we don't. We don't have a lake house. We don't. We're, this is us. This is what we do. And uh, I really think somebody like me that knew nothing about it, you know, coming into it 43 years ago, uh, I was a tennis player knowing nothing. You know, I, it, 
in a lot of ways that really helped me because I didn't have any, I, you know, I didn't have to do it like my dad did or my granddaddy or, you know, we, I was able just to start scratch and made a lot of bad mistakes. No question. The eighties were tough now. Um, as we came through it I and mean, we hit some tough farming times and, um, but, you know, we learned from those mistakes and found some great people that helped me get through these eras. And, uh, and that's what I want to do now. I mean, I'm not going anywhere. I'm, I'm not retiring, uh, but I want to make sure uh, that we, this transition is good over the next, you know, whatever, however years, the good Lord lets me continue doing what I'm doing. Um, and that we have that in place. Uh, you know, we see, you know, see a lot of businesses that don't have successions plans and their founders I'm a third generation person, but I'm a first generation on what I'm doing. And so, yeah. So I'm kind of, if if I did, if I wasn't third generation, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do it. But, but as a kind of a founder of of the duck hunting and what I'm doing, I, you know, know, we study a lot of these other organizations, you know, if they don't have good successions in place, the founder, when the founder dies or gets sick or can't operate, it, it, it just goes away. And, and, that would just make me sick uh, of all the people that have helped me put this together from everybody that's paid to come through five Oaks and all our staff that have come through and helped me. If this just got divided up and, you know, sold to 20 different duck clubs and, uh, you know, when providing the habitat and the resources that this area, one, one thing you look at that G, those GPS maps that, that Ryan, Ryan's got that we're looking at, you look at what the, there's several families here, the McGeorges, the Hamptons, the Snowdens, the um, uh, Smarts, uh, that have providing critical habitat that that we need, uh, that all for, all for all of us that are that are doing this. So it's we don't want to lose that. You know, we, we want to make sure these, along with the public areas getting better, hopefully over time, along with what we're doing private, we can keep these birds coming here every year. I mean, yeah, you know, they only live about three years, so you you don't want to lose that that imprint. Uh, you know, you, otherwise they'll they'll be someplace else. You know, if we're not if we're not careful. No doubt. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors: Sitka Gear, turning clothing into gear. No name is more synonymous with waterproof clothing than Gore-Tex, and over the last fifty years, Gore-Tex has changed how we look at waterproof clothing. Waders have come a long way since I borrowed a pair of felt sole Converse from my mother to go on my first hunt in the woods. The Delta waders from Sika Gear have made disposable waders a thing of the past. From the Gore-Tex lining to the breathable fabric to even the boots on them, I can stay comfortable day in and day out in the field. From high-performance base layers to windproof, waterproof outer layers, Sika Gear has you covered. Gunner, the team that brought you the world's best dog kennel, recently released a training bumper designed to better assist working dogs and their owners throughout the field and training obedience process. The Gunner bumper has a taper vented design to promote proper holding and maximum breathability. It also has an adjustable removable rope with two grip and carry positions. And because they crafted this with a proprietary rubber compound, it's sure to be a durable and reliable tool. Maybe the thing that sets it apart the most, though, is the removable cap that allows you to utilize an interior cavity for wings, feathers, and any other scent training necessity. Most of the product reviews reference that, including this five-star review from Mark. I absolutely love my new bumpers. The ability to scent train with these is saving me on live frozen birds, let alone the ease and convenience of using the bumper versus a thawed bird. Now I simply take a piece of the wing and slide it into the bumper. 
Historically, I went through a bird every couple of days. Now one teal has lasted me two weeks. They're extremely versatile and like everything gunner, extraordinarily well-designed and constructed. Well, let's, uh, you know, we've, we've, I think we're at a, I think we got a two episode, <laughs> uh, podcast going because I mean, it's just obviously fascinating to listen, uh, to, to, you know, where you've come from, where you, where you've been, where you're going. Uh, but, but we've got a little segment that we do here at the end where we, uh, it's kind of a quick hitter deal. It's not a, you don't have to expound on any of these answers, but we're going to, we're going to ask you five questions kind of off the cuff, okay. kind of fun stuff. Um, and just, uh, you know, uh, I'll throw one at you, answer it. Case I'll throw one at you and then we'll, we'll have a question at the end. Uh, and that'll, that'll wrap us up, but this is kind of a, a fun little, little piece to do, but, um, I'll go ahead and start it. And, and, and the question I have, and, and this is one you, you could probably talk on this for an hour easily, but the, uh, just a quick answer on for all the, and, and I'm sure you've encountered it a lot. There's a lot of people that are anti-conservation organization uh, for, for various reasons. They, they, they spend the money wrong. They put, uh, rest areas in mm-hmm. states outside Arkansas, you know, all those, all those things. Why should somebody be supporting conservation organizations today? Well, if they don't support the conservation organization, then, then nobody else is. Uh, because we, we have an old saying in, in the conservation business, conservation without money, it's just conversation. And it takes a lot of money to do really good conservation work. If you just allow it to go back to just natural and not do anything, you know, you're not going to like what you see. Uh, it has to be managed conservation. And, and the groups that the conservation organizations, whether it's Ducks Unlimited or Delta or Nature Conservancy, they all have a, a really, you know, their, their users, the, the, the groups that are behind those, they're passionate about what they're doing because uh, they have a use for it. They want to see it. Um, you know, D and Delta is mainly, you know, duck hunters that, that associate that, Audubon or bird watchers. You know, if you don't have that passion, you're just not going to do it. It's just not going to happen. And then it will just disappear. I mean, I, I, I took the quail guys when I was growing up, guys, is in Pine Bluff, Southeast Arkansas. There was a lot of quail hunters in, in Arkansas. And, uh, you know, the birds left. It wasn't because uh, we shot them out. It's because the habitat, the landscape changed so quickly, the birds couldn't, the quail could not adapt to what happened. And, you know, I mean, definitely, I want to see that happen to ducks. It could happen. It could easily happen to ducks. Uh, no doubt. Uh, and and so conservation organizations are the ones that keep that at the top of the list to make sure that doesn't happen. And they're made up of people like the three of us that are very passionate about it. And yes, there's always going to be anti whatever. And there's always an excuse why somebody didn't hunt. You know, we, we've heard a lot about, you know, we're short stopping. Our, people in Louisiana gets upset because we're short stopping in Arkansas. People in Arkansas say we're short, Missouri short shopping. Yeah. End of the day, you can't short shop a duck. When you get weather, when you get a front like we had last uh, December 22nd, when it goes from 45 to 6 in one day, those birds are going to move. they got to continue moving. they got to survive. That doesn't mean they're going to come every day and every year when you want them. They won't do that. 
but they will come over time because they've got to keep moving. Uh, they've got to survive. It's in their DNA to survive. Um, that's where the science comes in. And that's what's behind uh, organizations like DU and Delta and Audubon and Nature Conservancy. The science, they're science-driven organizations that understand that. And um, they don't complain. They just get, they get work done instead of complaining. All right, George, that's uh, I've got one for you here. I'd like to give our listeners kind of a, a look behind the curtains as a, a commissioner for the Game and Fish Commission. What was what was the toughest topic or issue that, that you had come up in your time on the commission? Well, probably the most controversial one was was the robo duck issue and the two mallard and bringing the second hen back. Um, uh, that was extremely controversial. You know, we, there was, there was no evidence that robo duck or the second hen, even science evidence that had any demonstrable. And that's the, that's the word that us fish and wildlife use demonstrable evidence that has any impact on population. And, and when that, that was 2000, I think it was 2008 when we reversed that, um, it, I was just amazed at the uh, outpouring of people that really were upset about that um, because it, it, you know, I learned there was kind of different types of hunters at that time. You had the, you had the professional hunter that really didn't want the average guy to have a, well, if he can't blow a duck collar and can't scout, he really doesn't deserve to be out here. You know, that kind of mentality. You had the traditional hunter that just always wanted to go back to whatever it was in their mind that they wanted it to be. Well, I, I tell you, I've won. I don't want to go back to red ball waders, you know, <laughs> and, and, and overall, wall, overall, you know, I, I don't want to go back to those days, but they were, you know, they wanted to go back to that traditional period and thought the robo duck was something to me, the robo duck, it was over. I mean, I, we saw what happened in 1999, how they were affected ducks for about a year or two. And then basically it was over. I don't disagree with the commission. It happened a year before I got on when they banded, but they thought the other states were going to follow suit and nobody did. Um, but I, I, the two, bringing the second hand back was important to me uh, because we know through science, do you have complete evidence? So the Fish and Wildlife Service have the evidence that that second hand, when you have the numbers that we have, uh, have very little to no impact on the population. And the problem is when you accidentally kill that second hen, you've got a problem in your blind. I mean, we, we've all, we've all made a mistake on identifying and, and, you know, we all try to kill drakes is that's not the point. The, the problem is, is the penalty is pretty severe and you leave a, a bad taste in the hunter's mouth when he does something wrong, either, you know, he's, it's not going to be a good outcome. Anyway, you hope he doesn't get called. And if he does, then he's got a ticket and that's negative. He don't want him to, to actually hide the duck. You know, anyway, the point is, and there's no reason for it. I know it sounds good that we not going to kill that hen, but it happens. But there was no science behind it to, to prevent it from happening. And, you know, of course, our populations have shown that over the years since 2008, that, you know, they, re, they rebound with habitat. Uh, that's where the birds come from. It's the habitat, uh, not from killing that second hen. But anyway, so I, you know, those were two really controversial uh, con uh, 
things that happened that I, I, we didn't, I didn't do a good job of getting the information, the science out because it just, it was just overwhelming uh, negative, but we stood to our ground and, you know, eventually the commission took the robo ducks out of the uh, public areas, which, you know, the public wanted that. But I always thought, you know, the, the average guy that just wants to go out and sit in a rice field in the afternoon, take his son or daughter, it's not a great caller, but he, if he thinks he has better confidence by putting the robo duck out there and that's going to help him, so be it. We need hunters. We don't need to lose any more hunters. You look at the amount of federal duck stamps we sold uh, in the 70s versus today, we're down to almost 50%. And federal duck stamps, that, that support is critical. We, we're, we're as with populations, we're definitely going down percent of population. And again, if we lose the hunter, we'll lose the we'll lose the resource at some point in time. And uh, that that concerns me more than anything is that we've got to keep hunters engaged, and it's just harder and harder to recruit and get people out here. You know, we we got so many distractions for children now with all the different activities. We got more broken homes. We got people that don't live uh, where the ducks are. They're you know northwest Arkansas and cities. And, people off the farms and in the rural and the urban areas. We, it's just harder to get people out of your hunting. And so that's one of the challenges that all the conservation organizations and everybody that in this field, whether you're uh, a shotgun shell maker or a whatever, you ought to be very concerned about the, the direction we're going uh, in hunter numbers. We've got to get recruitment. Uh, otherwise, we, the resource could be, be gone at least from the levels that we know it right now. Awesome. Awesome answer. Um, with, with a lot of good insight, cause it's, it's deeper than, uh, what a lot of people oh, probably much deeper. think it is. Um, all right, well, here's another question. This, this is a fun one. Uh, you know, we're at the, the final stages of Wimbledon hurtling towards, uh, hurtling towards the finals. Uh, who's your favorite tennis player all time? Woo. You know, I, uh, Roger Federer, I just, he's got one of the most beautiful games I've ever seen. I mean, I just love his backhand, his strokes. It's just so, they're so classic and he is so smooth and, and his success for the length of time was just incredible. Um, you know, I, I, I would, I would have to say Roger Federer is, I mean, I could watch him play. I love going on YouTube and just watching highlights of him. Uh, I mean, Djokovic and Nadal are, are amazing players as well um and, and for those three to dominate tennis like they've done it's just incredible i mean I, you, you look at I, I would challenge any nba player to try to try to make it in the tennis world you know I mean, <laughs> it, it is a you know if you lose you you know that's you know you're out of the tournament you don't make any money you don't make any money and then be out there the and you as a tennis player and, a, and an athlete the way they hit that ball now, the, the athleticism, I mean, I know the equipment has improved, but I think it's the athleticism and the training now. I, it, you look at tennis today and then go back and watch Connors and McEnroe and Borg and that, that generation. It's just night and day. Look at the women, uh, Chris Everett and that generation with this generation. It is just unbelievable. But it's because of the, I really think the athleticism and what and how they train and what they do how they can have rallies as long as they do and as accurate as they are. I mean, back in my day, we were serving Valley. We want to get the point over as fast as possible. 
these guys can have 25, you know, stroke rallies that just are unbelievable. You know, so I, but to answer your question, Roger Federer would be, would be my favorite. I just think he's, he was just so classy in everything he did and a, a great, great champion and, and got out on top. You know I mean? He, yep. He's finally gave out and he was done. He's 41 years old, yeah. but I mean, he could beat it all the way till then. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty incredible. Yeah. Pretty incredible. How about you? Who was your favorite? Man, he'd be up there. Yeah. I'm left-handed. So, you know, I always, always uh, skewed towards left-handed guys. Uh, I, I like McEnroe when I was a kid, uh, just the way he played. And it was so unique. Uh, he, he did not look like an athlete. <laughs> Yes, he was off the Oh, I've, I've seen him with his shirt off. I used to I, when they used to come through Memphis every year. That's one reason I went to Memphis State because we hosted a, a pro tournament. I was a, I, I, what I did for a job over there was a racket stringer, and so I, I would string all of the pros' rackets. You know, I was, I was a racket stringer for the racket club. But that's where my wife and I met. Um, I mean, he looked like Macro's upper body was just looked like somebody from Ethiopia. I mean, it was just pathetic, but his. But he was so smart, yeah. and it, it's so he was just ahead of. He was always ahead. He was so his finesse, you know. Contrast. Oh, that's it. Oh, his hands, hands were, were unbelievable. But he, he, the contrast between he and Connors was fun to watch because they were Chris was just, yeah. you know, two inches over the net, hard as you can hit it. You know, using that crazy T two thousand racket forever. <laughs> um, but yeah, I love McEnroe too. I just I love the way he his style and play. It, a guy kind of emulated my game. Who I uh, I love getting. It's been for your time. A guy named Tom Ocker and Ily Nastasi. They were uh, had great hands because I I was taught growing up lock your wrist. Don't I loved I loved to snap my wrist. And my early pros always say, "Oh, you can't do that." Well, that's what I wanted to do. You know. Yeah, I was I was very slow. My my footwork was not very good, but I had good hand eye coordination and uh, and a good serve in volley. Um, but man, I love snapping at wrist because that, that's how those guys play. I finally met a coach after my college career, uh, who's professional tennis player. Got off the tour, taught in Memphis at the University Club. A guy named Mike Cahill, and he's the first coach who finally told me I was doing it right. <laughs> and he gave me the confidence. And I never enjoyed <laughs> tennis more, especially my backhand. That was always my weakest shot. And he taught me how to hit backhand. And um, but I, I, but that was but those two guys, even Nastasi and Tom Hocker, were just uh, Hocker was from Nastasi was from Romania, I think, and Hocker was from Holland or someplace. But they were they were great players. Well, pitching. Who was your Who was your favorite pitcher? Oh, I'd probably say uh, Steve Carlton. Oh gosh, he wouldn't be awesome. Man, he was awesome. Awesome for the Cardinals. I mean, he yeah. was. Woo. Yeah, big left hander. Yeah. Golly, he was good. Well, George, I've I've got one more for you. Uh, we'll, okay. Uh, a little bit off the beaten path, but we're not far from the topic right now. You've you've said it twice, Memphis State University. So I assume you are not a University of Memphis graduate. Well, if I can find where my diploma is, it says Memphis State University. So <laughs> if they want to send me a new diploma. <laughs> how, uh, how did you? It's university. I guess my question would be, how did you feel about the name change? I, I you know, they didn't ask me what I thought. I, I just, I, I mean, there's some great universities that are, have 
the state, you know, Arkansas State, Arizona State, I mean, I, Louisiana State University. I don't know why they changed the name. I, I don't know if it was an image deal or or what, but you know, it's still Memphis State to me. We are building a heck of a tennis. Uh, I mean, a twenty million dollar tennis complex. The city of Memphis is doing with contributors. Memphis in Memphis it should be open in September. Uh, it's going to give them an incredible place to play. Um, uh, the racket club where we were playing, we had on we had courts on the on the grounds of, on the campus of Memphis State, but we got to practice and work out and do a lot of uh, our matches indoors, especially during the winters at the racket club. But it's gone. It, it's torn. It's it's completely destroyed. They they're going to build shopping center or something there. So they were yeah. out of place to play, and so they city came through and uh, along with the, a lot of folks that came through to raise the money to to build this. I can't wait to see the dedication of it. It's going to be it's going to be great. But but it was a great time. Nice. I, 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 sure. I love going to Memphis State, and the town of Memphis was great. And, um, that was always our second home. My mom and dad met in Memphis. You know, my my dad uh, lived in Pine Bluff. My mother was originally from Duet, but they met in Memphis. My sister. Met both her husbands in Memphis. I met my wife in Memphis. Um, you know, it's some of my closest friends from Memphis. It's just always been a very, very, very close. And, and, and really, a guy that was a big mentor to me, Billy Dunavant, who was the reason Ducks Unlimited is in Memphis because of right. the money. Mm-hmm. He's the one that built the bought the racket club the year I graduated high school in '75, and said we're bringing professional tennis to Memphis. And he hired the you hired the um, Memphis State coach to be the uh, the tennis director there, and that's what that's who recruited me. Um, and I said, "God, this is I would love to go to Arkansas. I just wouldn't get enough to play for Arkansas." But but I, I, that was a big turning point. I ended up that's where my wife I met my wife, and and uh, you know was, everything happens for a reason. Uh, Donovan's wife wouldn't she a big tennis player? Uh, Donovan's wife? Uh, yes, sir. No, she was not. Okay, I guess I was wrong, but I thought that was kind of motivation. Yeah, for no, he he had he's had three. He died. Billy died uh, about a year and a half ago, and uh, but he had three wives. I don't think any of them played at all. Uh, but Billy was. Billy was a big. Whatever Billy did, he he was the best shot I ever shotgun shot, duck hunting shot I ever shot with. And he was left eye dominant and shot right hand. But he he had. He had these Browning A5s that he would cut into the stock so he could look down it with his left eye. He was incredible. Yeah. He was the most competitive human being. I mean, and during college, I mean, he was, Billy was, uh, that's what, 15 years, 16 years older than I was, or 20 years. But anyway, we'd play in college, and he'd play until you let him win a set. I mean, we might be out there for two hours. And the whole time he's trading cotton. You know, he had a phone on the side of the court, and he'd be trading cotton in between games. Had a computer for a prank. Largest cotton merchant in the world. Just absolutely brilliant man. But one of the one of the most gracious and kind and um, uh, people I've ever met. He was he, when I went in as president in Portland, Oregon. He and my dad had a great relationship. Uh, my dad was in cottonseed oil mill business and a tennis player, um, and through Memphis. But when I went in as president, Ducks Unlimited, he and he and his wife Tommy flew out to Portland and they're playing, and he wanted to introduce me. Um, and he said, my mom and dad had already passed. And uh, he introduced me as uh, being there representing them. Uh, it's a great, he, he makes, you can see it on YouTube. It's, I can't even watch it without getting emotional. And I'm in the back sitting there watching this. I'm getting ready in the green room having to follow this. 
And I'm going, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? <laughs> but it was a, one of the kindest things I've ever had anybody do for me, ever. Um, it was something I always, always will remember. Uh, he was a great guy. And another big part of my life, one of those men that came into my life that, that really meant a lot to me. That's a cool story. All right, here is the, here is the wrap-up uh, that we ask every, every guest. Uh, if you could change one thing related to modern-day waterfowling, what would it be? <laughs> changed something modern-day waterfowling. Wow, that's a great question. And I don't know what I'd change right off the top of my head. Um, man, what would I change modern-day waterfowling? I mean, you, you look at all the changes that we've had, you know, think about what they did back in the 30s when they got rid of, you know, they put limits in back in, you know, 15s. They got rid of uh, ducks that they could use live decoys. And you think about all the changes that have gone on that I'm sure were very controversial. What would we, what would we do today? Um, I it's a pretty perfect, it's a pretty damn good sport. I'm not sure what I would change. I don't, I, I really, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we're going to keep improving habitat, but that's not a change. We just got to keep working on habitat. We got to keep saving habitat, but. Uh, yeah, I think I like that answer. I mean. Uh, the shotguns, the shells, the, you know, we, we're, we, you know, think about when we changed from lead to steel, and that transition was, was kind of tough until they got the technology up. Um, shotguns today, the equipment. Only, only thing I'd have is keep my hands a little warmer. That's the only thing gets cold. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody can seem to figure that Nobody out. Nobody can figure that out. <laughs> but, you know, my gosh, when we used to hunt, you come in from hunting and your feet would start itching because your feet were so cold. But, you know, 1,600 grams of insulate, insulate took care of that. Yeah, yeah, they figured that one out. The waiter, the waiter game has been figured out to a degree. Oh my! Leaks, maybe not so much, but comfort, comfort, and warmth are. They got that down. They got that down. I mean, it's just totally different from when we grew up. Um, yeah, in some ways, we've almost gotten too good. You know, some of the GPS and the mud motors and all the. You know, when we grew up, we didn't have ATVs yet, so we walked everywhere. Yeah, that's right. And I think you know, I think people. Some, you know, those are, you know, even though I don't walk a lot now, but, you know, those are great memories that we made, you know, that, that you really worked to get to that spot and it didn't come easy. And, and I, sometimes we make things maybe a little bit too easy today. And, and I'm guilty. And we're guilty of that here. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's awful easy to get from one place to the other, but, but that's what we do. And, you know, that's, that's what we do as Americans, you know, we, we, we're, that's progress sometimes. That's right. That's right. Well, George, we uh, really, really appreciate you taking the time to to visit with us today. That was a awesome, uh, awesome interview podcast, whatever you want to call it. But uh, really enjoyed that, and and um, you know, hopefully, we'll circle back around some point, and you know, the Ag Research Center will be down the road. Well, let's talk to Jody, yeah, Jody and Ryan. You know, uh, those guys are the they're the brains. Uh, I'd love for you to meet Ryan sometime. Uh, you guys come down here. We're here. We'll go riding around with Ryan. Ask him. Yeah, I'd love to. Presentation. Just so excited to get him involved in Arkansas and waterfowl. He'll he'll be a fantastic guy. And yeah. the students come under him. And of course, Jody's as you know, we, Jody's going to the Hall of Fame, which is well deserved. And he's a 
he's a he, he's he's a legend already and he's only 52 years old so that's right no doubt about it no doubt all right about well, it. thank you guys appreciate yep. y'all bring all right. tennis you next time Brent. i will i will let you know okay casey good to visit with you too sir thank you all again very honored i enjoyed it thank you all right. And with that, we'll say thank you to all, all of you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode with, with a true legend in uh, Arkansas waterfowling and, and really beyond our state. Um, you know, we, we uh, hope to have him on again as things progress with all, everything he has going on because it's, it's an incredible amount uh, of good he's doing for the sport. Uh, of course, be sure to subscribe uh, to the podcast so you can get upcoming episodes. We'll follow it up with more exciting stuff. Uh, and interesting interviews. And then, of course, follow us on social media at The Standard Sportsman. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. The Standard Sportsman podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. I've always been a fan of Yeti coolers and their drinkware. Now they've come out with a Loadout 30 Go Box. Uh, Brent, did you know they're also making those in a 15 and a 60 now? I did. I've been a big fan of the 30. Uh, I actually carry around our our mobile podcast gear in one. And then I've got another one that I use during duck season that I don't have to worry about any of my gear getting wet or dusty and dry when it when hadn't rained in a while. It's an amazing product. Yeah. So I, I use them a bunch. Uh, same deal. I've got a 30 that stays in the boat, uh, carry camera gear and all sorts of equipment in it. And it's nice to know that clients dogs you know nothing's going to get it wet going to tear it up but the the 15 has really found a spot in my arsenal as well i switch from hunting with clients to hunting with my kids pretty frequently and it's great to to use that 15 as an ammo box so i've got all the kids ammo gauge reducers hand warmers whatever they're going to need in one box and all i've got to do is grab it and i'm ready to take them out in the woods yeah the yeti go box is is definitely the way to go and keep it organized accessible and protected and it's no matter what size you pick, it's a must-have for waterfowl season. Tom Beckby started in 2015 with the simple goal of making classic sporting apparel for sportsmen. Since introducing their flagship tinsaw jacket eight years ago, they've carried that goal forward with a full range of classic wax cotton jackets, canvas, and leather bags, and field gear for waterfowlers and upland hunters. You can shop for their full collection at TomBetby.com, in their Birmingham, Alabama, and Wilson, Arkansas stores, and at over 150 retailers across the United States. Backed by a lifetime guarantee, find out for yourself the difference between quality over quantity.